You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. It's so great to be with you this morning. I've met people from Texas, from Indiana, from Missouri here this morning, of course, all over the the Metro. Pro tip, if you are ever invited to share something up front during the summer, take it, because like the air conditioning is all right here. So just wanted you to know that. Well, and just grateful it's not hot as blazes like it's been all week. Well, uh, this morning we're just a standalone series in between two, or a message in between two series. We've wrapped up our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to pivot into a series on uh, taken from the Psalms of Ascent, if you want to get a jump. That's the 15 Psalms beginning in Psalm 120 through 134. Just have a read. You'll be ready to roll with us starting then. But this morning, I wanted to share with you what I believe is one of the most overlooked and misunderstood, wonderful, reassuring, transforming passages in all of the Bible. But in order to grasp it, we have to get a hold of the background for it to make any sense at all. Now, the Old Testament, the newest parts of the Old Testament were written 400 years uh, before Christ. And it's the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament or the New Testament, but both that are given together, that are given to us as our guide to life, to point us to the Father, and to reveal uh, to us His Son, Jesus Christ, and most of all, His grace. Many people want to dismiss the Old Testament out of hand because at times, admittedly, it's really just confusing and very difficult uh, to understand. Uh, But you got to remember, it's the only Bible that Jesus had and every one of the writers of the New Testament, that was the only uh, Bible that they knew. And St. Augustine explained it this way, that the, that the Old Testament is like a beautifully decorated room that's very poorly, very dimly lit. And you have to open the window of the New Testament and let light in before you can things come into focus, into, into view. It's from the New Testament looking backwards that most of it makes sense. <clears throat> so I want to look at this passage under, under three headings. The first one has to do with really the anxiety of Abram. Uh, that's verses 1 through 8, and then a real revelation of the grace of God, verses 9 through 21, and we'll wrap it all up by, by uh, showing how this affects really how we should live. So let's dig into the, the anxiety of Abram. It all starts off there in verse 1, do not be afraid, Abram. You know, anytime God or his angels show up and it begins to talk, it usually starts off with, don't be afraid, and it nearly never works, right? <clears throat> People just, ah, they freak completely out. Um, but in this case, it was very particular because Abram has just returned from a search and rescue mission, and he got his nephew Lot away from a neighboring warlord, so he's very practically afraid of retribution, that they're going to hunt him down and, you know, rub him out. He was living in this very ugly, you know, gang on gang, clan on clan, dog eat dog uh, world. So God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, 
I am your shield, your very great reward. And despite how clear and reassuring that might be, he immediately responds with, yeah, well, okay, I'm scared. You said you were going to bless the whole world through my descendants. And if you haven't noticed, I'm childless, and my inheritance is going to go to this guy, this servant in my house, my house, Eleazar. You see, God had made a promise to Abram, and he hasn't come through yet on that promise. Any of you relate to that? Like God hasn't quite delivered what you thought would be what he has for you? Am I the only one in the room that my, whose biggest hang-up with Almighty God is he is really too slow, and he's generally not very interested in my advice on, on how things ought to, ought to go? You said you were going to bless him, and now God then responds. Listen to this. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body, with some help from his wife, obviously, will be your heir. And he took him outside. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I'm not just going to give you a child, Abram. I'm going to give you a nation of children. Notice that God gives him this deep assurance despite the fact that Abram is filled with anxiety driven by his doubts. How many know what it is to be anxious? Hmm? Yeah, okay. How many know what it is to have doubts? Yeah, how many know that lots of times the two are connected? Sure. How many refuse to raise your hands no matter what I ask? Okay, good. (laughs) Thanks for the honesty. gives him this insurance, uh, this assurance despite his doubts. And in verse 6, Abram, it says, believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Then God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll take possession for it. You got to hand it to the guy for his boldness. But in other ways, he's just like you and me, isn't he? Well, he's at least he's like me because his doubts are gone for a grand total of one verse. And now they're back. But his doubt is not quite the same as it was a moment before. Before Abram doubted God, but now He's really doubting himself. I know we have this agreement. You made this promise, but now I'm not so sure if I can live up to my end of the bargain. I have doubts and anxieties about you, but now I have doubts and anxieties about me. I'm not sure, God, if you're going to come through for me. And now I'm really not sure if I can come through for you either. Guy's pretty honest, didn't he? And then God responds. In the first eight verses, God is totally open to Abram's doubts and says, Hey, I'm the Lord and I'm going to do this and that. 
He doesn't say, how dare you question me, you miserable little insect. No, he doesn't. Instead, he answers him. When Abram has even more doubts, God patiently answers every one of his fears and anxieties over and over and over and over. Aren't you glad that God does not give up on people, on you, on me, when we're filled with anxiety and fear and doubt? And that's really good news. Because on one hand, God is so patient with us doubters. And then on the other hand, he doesn't let us doubters stay in our doubt. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't let us stay in our doubts. Instead, he keeps coming back and coming back and coming back, which reminds me of the most famous doubter of all, of course, who was Thomas, yes, my name's sake. In John 20, remember, Thomas wasn't there when the resurrected Christ appeared to all the other disciples, and when he's told that Jesus is risen from the dead, he says, no way. Until I see him with my very own eyes and until I touch those nail prints with my very own hands, I'm not gonna believe it. He was from Missouri. The show me state, right? A little inside humor with the new people. Uh, And when Jesus does meet him in that great encounter at the end of John chapter 20, here, Thomas, look, touch me. Now stop doubting and believe. It's the perfect balance. Jesus doesn't show up and blow up. How dare you? I gave my life, and I get this out of you. No, good thing I wasn't, God didn't look to me to try to save the world, because it would have never happened. You want to touch me? Here, go right ahead. Isn't that something? Now stop doubting. God loves us so much that he refuses to let us acquiesce in our doubts. Instead, he brings the perfect balance between patience and gentleness to each and every one of us doubters. And that's important to remember because we all, if we have any kind of intellectual honesty, struggle and wrestle with fears, doubts, and anxieties. We go between acquiescing you know, that's, that's accepting our doubts without any protest, investigation, or struggle. We just say, well, that's the way it's going to be, on one hand. And on the other hand, some of us have come from settings where we were never allowed to have any doubts, made to accept faith without any protest, investigation, or struggle. This is God's word, and don't you question it. Sound familiar to anybody's background? Take it from this Thomas, friends. Churches where it is unsafe 
to doubt actually create skeptics. If we're never allowed to be open about our doubts, we'll never get any answers. Add to that, we live in a very sophisticated society that says anyone who has any kind of certainties about matters of faith at all is an idiot, right? It's therefore considered to be enlightened to be doubtful and skeptical about everything. I mean, who can know anything about anything. So there's a secular culture that makes doubt into a virtue and a traditional culture that makes doubt into a vice. Virtue, vice. And then you have the God of the Bible who shows there's always a third way, who's gentle with those who doubt, never accepting doubt as a place where you can live forever. And if Gateway is going to be a place where persons come to the love of God in Christ, then we must always seek this very same balance between doubt and faith. That's what I love so much about the small group uh, structure in this church where we can, we can honestly wrestle with life's issues and what Scripture has to say to them. It's my prayer and my hope that Gateway will always be different, both from the world and the cliche of far too many churches, so that doubters and doubt will always be welcome. So, Abram... Sum it all up. He's, he's has, he has doubts. You know, he says, I don't know about you, and I, I really don't know about me. So how does God answer him? And this is the first place we see in all of Scripture where he, he breaks open his grace, the grace of God. Because he says, <clears throat> this pretty odd statement, I mean, his response is a shopping list and an odd one. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. That's all he says. Go get these five things. And without any further discussion or instruction, Abram goes and finds them. And apparently he knew exactly what to do with them because he cuts them in two, except for the birds, and he puts the two halves opposite each other, making an aisle, stained with the blood of the animals. And because Abram knew right away what's going on. They were about to make a covenant. They were going to draw up a contract. In our literate culture today, when we draw up a contract by writing down stipulations on a piece of paper and signing our names to the dotted line, some historians say they use a dotted line that refers back to the splatters of blood between the two. I'm not so sure about that, but it, in one sense, is a nice, tidy comparison. 
But in our culture, this is how we hold people accountable. That's how we hold each other accountable. We drop the stipulations and we both sign our name. A contract is a modern day covenant. <clears throat> but that's not how contracts were made in pre-literate oral cultures of ancient Middle East. In those days, before written cultures, you acted out the drama of the consequences of breaking your promise, breaking your contract, breaking the terms of the covenant. Back then, when you drew up a contract, you took animals, cut them in half, and then together you would grasp arms and hands, and as you walked through the bloody aisle between the severed halves, you would look each other in the eye as you walked, and you would say, if I do not in the future do everything that I say I'm going to do today in this covenant, I will become just as these animals. I will be cut to pieces. My body will become food for the birds and the animals. It was the original meaning of a blood oath. Jeremiah in chapter 34, describes this, talking about another case, those who violated my covenant have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. I will hand them over to their enemies and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. If you broke your word, this is what happened to you. It's called the curse of the covenant. I mean, I'm thinking next time you sign up for a new cell phone, you know, forget the pen and paper stuff. Let's go to this extra. I think we could finally improve customer service experience in most self-prone providers. I don't mean to make light of it. But another thing about covenants in those days, when you had non-equals, <clears throat> let's say a king conquered a country, the subjects of the conquered country would enter into a covenant with the conquering king. And it would be the only way they could maintain possession of their lands or livestock or children or just about anything. And in that case, they'd, if they didn't have a portable throne, they'd get a large stone or something and the king would sit upon it. They would create the isle of the severed animals And the subjects would walk between the severed animals, not the king. Only the subjects would swear an oath to the conquering king because, after all, he was being generous for even allowing the covenant to exist. I mean, think about it. He could, he could kill them. He could enslave them. He could sell them off to slaves to somebody else or imprison them and just take their land and be done with it. And Abram was absolutely sure that's what was happening. He was wrong, but he was absolutely certain. Certain that he was going to have to walk between the pieces and make a vow, an oath, a blood oath, to promise 
to God Almighty to do something or he's going to die. But, and here's the good news, that's not what happened. What did happen here is one of the most astonishing and awesome scenes in the entire Bible. And you have to dig into the text to see it. We have to light the Old Testament by opening the New Testament window. The Isle of Dead Animals, the blood, the doubt, Abram, the setting sun, and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 12. This wasn't just dark of lights out. This is the deep dreaded darkness of terror, a spiritual darkness, a panic attack, a dread. He fell asleep. More likely, he passed out. He was knocked out, floored, fainted, catatonic, catatonic under the weight of it all. And in the midst of that, Almighty God restates his promise. No for certain. And instantly, fire and smoke. We call this an, a, a, a Christophany, a theophany, an appearance, a physical appearance, manifestation of Almighty God. And whenever you find that in all of the Old Testament, they are always pointing to the promise of or pointing to the Messiah himself. So in this theophany. Instantly, fire and smoke appeared and moved down the aisle between the severed animals. Now these two words, fire and smoke, are, 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 are tough to translate. They're, they're translated for the text, from our text here as smoking fire pot and blazing torch, but really, more accurately, they would be billowing smoke and blazing lightning. It's the same two words used to describe God when he descended on Mount Sinai, in Moses' story. They are physical manifestations of the presence of Almighty God. The second word is the most compelling, lightning. I mean, a bolt of lightning appeared somehow and held its shape. Imagine the blinding, crackling, blazing glory of God. And Abram knew that God wasn't just rehashing some old vow, I'll give you this or that to be a blessing to you, but God himself was making an oath to Abram. He was making a covenant promise. If I don't do this, Abram, may I be torn to pieces. May I die. Astounding. It's, it's like the conquering king walking between the pieces of the covenant with some, you know, lowly nobody conquered servant. He's saying, Abram, if I don't bless you, may my immortality become mortal. May I stop being God. May I be cut off if I fail to bless you. And as astonishing as all that is, it is not all. It gets even better. 
God passes through the pieces. He makes the covenant. He takes the oath. Verses 17 and 18, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It's not just amazing that God walks through the pieces. It's equally astounding who does not walk between the pieces. Abram. It's a total role reversal. To be part of this, Abram, you don't have to do a thing. Astonishing, especially when you grasp the context. I will bless you even if it means me being torn to pieces. Not only if I fail to live up to this covenant, I will pay the penalty. Listen. But if you fail to live up to this covenant, I will pay the penalty because your faithfulness, your performance has nothing to do with my blessing. My blessing is coming to you unconditionally and I'll be torn to pieces if necessary to bring it to pass. If either you fail or I fail, I'll be torn to pieces so that I will be able to bless you. And Abram was blown away. A deal like this is just too good to be true. This is an unconditional covenant. God is saying, if either of us fails, I will pay the penalty. Flash forward, New Testament, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. The narrative right in the midst of the crucifixion of Christ. Another thick darkness of dread. It descends on the whole planet. And he was cut off from the land, Isaiah writes, of the living for the, trans for the transgression of my people he was punished. Hear that again. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Cut off. That's covenant language, friends. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that moment, Jesus' immortality becomes mortal. The impossible becomes possible. And God was being cut off. He was being torn in two. He died to fulfill the covenant between us and himself so that he could bless us even though we failed him. So that our salvation could be absolutely un conditional. Such was the cost of God's astounding promise. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to all through Christ Jesus. And friends, that's really good news. So, what difference does all of this make? Two things, and we're done. First, there is nothing on earth like this. 
Christianity is the only faith on the face of the earth that says it doesn't matter how much of a failure you are. If you enter into this covenant with the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son, you are saved by grace, sheer grace. It has nothing to do with you. Like Abram, you don't have to. Like Abram, you don't even get to walk between the pieces. You didn't take the oath. God took the oath. He took it all upon himself. No other religion is like this because it's a grace religion. Every other religion says, do this and God will bless you. Only Christianity says, God came and did this so he could bless you unconditionally. All other relations, religions say, this is how you can find God. Christianity alone is here's how God came to find you because without him, we would have never, never found him. So please don't ever say, think, or believe that all religions are basically the same. That's completely false. Christianity is utterly and entirely different. Second, let's get back to anxiety fear, doubt, and grace. The writer of Hebrews says, in kind of summary fashion of verses 14 to 19, when God made his promise to Abraham, it was Abram and then God changed his name to Abraham. He changes our identity when we come into grace. God made his promise to Abraham. He swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. He confirmed it with an oath. And we have this hope, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Just like a ship, every person needs an anchor. And when the anchor is down, it's firm and secure, and not going anywhere. The anchor, friends, is not based on anything you and I have or could possibly do. It's based entirely on what he's done. You will never find anything more secure than that. So maybe this morning... You're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not, I'm not sure about any of this. All I can tell you is there's no better place to anchor your soul, no better foundation, no better center, no better rock, no better anchor than in the covenant of God made through his son Jesus Christ. Nothing else in all this universe has the weight to anchor your soul has the strength to bear who you are. Jobs, money, romance, sex, family, hobbies, drugs, power, prestige, talents, possessions, success will only leave you drifting in the end. But if he is the anchor of your soul, nothing can ever move you. So trust the finished work of his grace in his covenant. 
trust what he's done for you. Look to him and say, because of what Jesus did, please accept me. Let him be the anchor of your soul for your mind, your relationships, your future, because he loves you and he has fulfilled his covenant with you in himself. And that, friends, is very, very good news. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.